0: Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 56.
1: You're a grass farmer before you're a livestock farmer, so you have to take care of your grass. If your grass is not in good health, your cows aren't gonna benefit from it.
0: You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's episode, we have Claudia Halen from canada on to discuss uh, grass-fed beef turkeys pork and some goats in there in fact we talk about boar goats and then limousine cattle in the overgrazing section she is our first guest from canada so very excited about that and i think we have an excellent episode you'll enjoy however before we talk to claudia 10 seconds about my farm. So I told you last week, got home from the grazing conference. It motivated me to do some daily moves, and I've been semi-successful with that. I'm really moving more like every other day, but I am moving the cattle. I did get a tealer farm gate that I plan on getting to work tomorrow. And also, I purchased a couple more South Pole cows for the farm. So I'm excited to increase the South Pole numbers, and it's been raining, not as much as I want, but we're getting some rain, so that's really great. And there's been some areas around me that's been very dry that's gotten more rain than I have, so that is excellent news for them. But enough about me. Let's talk to Claudia. Claudia, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today.
1: Thank you for having me, Cal.
0: Claudia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation?
1: So my name's Claudia. I was originally born in Switzerland, and then our family moved to Canada in 1998 when I was five months old. We've been farming here ever since. So I'm from uh, St. Pascal, Bailon. That's in eastern Ontario, Canada. Uh, It's about an hour out of Ottawa and an hour and a half from Montreal. So we're right in between there. We started with dairy and then we gradually moved to cash cropping. And then when I was, when I graduated high school, I went off to McGill University and studied in farm management and technology. And then I came back to the farm and here I am.
0: Very good. And when did you, so you, your family has crops. Did they have cattle or any other livestock at the time when you came back from
1: school? so so we had dairy animals at the beginning until 2003 and and they sold the dairy to focus on the on the crops after they sold the 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 dairy cows they kind of missed having animals around so they bought some some beef and so we had those for a while but then they kind of weaned down the amount of animals they had and then so I went to college and when I came back we still had we still had a couple uh, cows two two cows and a heifer so that's what I Started working with.
0: And what were your goals there when you started working with the cattle?
1: Well, at the beginning, I just wanted to feed our own family. I was like, well, we have beef, eat our own beef. So, because we do crops, so most of our land is, is, you know, for corn, beans, wheat. That's what we do. But then, like, right where our farm is, we have this marginal land. It's just bedrock. So we're on a a rocky ridge, and that's where the farm name comes from. So Fossil Ridge Farm. And this rocky outcrop is like a little island in the sea of, like, good farmland. And it's just, you can't do anything with it. So I was like, this is the perfect opportunity to graze and and try and make something of this essentially useless land into something useful. And so that's how that started.
0: Very good. And that was... You came back to the farm 2016, 2018?
1: I finished college in 2016, and then I worked a year at a different farm. And so I came back to the farm in 2017.
0: So once you you came back to the farm and you started down this path to provide beef for yourself, were you thinking at the time grass-fed, or what was your your thought pattern there, and, and where did you... Start towards the grass
1: fed. You know, I have a lot of influence from my parents and and my dad, you know, we grow crops. So he's like, feed corn. And I was like, okay, we have (laughs) because we have when we when we process our corn in the fall, we have corn fines and it's a waste product. Essentially, it's basically just cracked kernels. So it's perfectly fine. It's just. Oh, yes. You can't really sell it. So my dad's like, we have an abundance of this, just feed it. And I was like, okay, but I wasn't happy with how my animals were doing when I was doing that because, you know, I started to have some bottle calves to raise in the first year alongside the other ones. And those bottle calves, they were getting some, some of those corn fines, and I had some develop acidosis and then their feet were sore and they couldn't walk. So I was oh, like, yes. I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want them to not be able to walk. So I was like, no, no, no. Let's just stick to to grass-fed only. Like, I don't need to mess around. And and with the beef cows, you know, the forage we have, like, they almost get fat off of it anyways. I don't need to give them anything extra.
0: When is your first and last frost so our listeners can get an idea of your growing season?
1: Yeah. So typically our last frost is... At the end of April, beginning of May, sometimes we have one later in May, which occasionally happens last year. We had that and it was not great for a lot of people. And then our last frost is typically at the end of September, beginning of November, but we prefer it to be later, obviously. And so that leaves us with a very short growing season and a very long winter.
0: Oh, yes. So what kind of forages are you growing there for your animals?
1: Yeah, so we have most of the, the regular stuff you can think of. So we have orchard grass, Kentucky blue, um, fescues, Timothy. We have red and white clover, and we also have uh, some native grasses. Pretty much what most people are familiar with. How
0: warm does it get during the summer, and how cold does it get during the winter?
1: So in the summer, it can get pretty warm. So typically, it's around 25 to 25 degrees Celsius. 77 degrees Fahrenheit and then sometimes we get up to 40 degrees Celsius which is pretty hot that's around 104 degrees Fahrenheit and okay it can get quite warm and our region is humid so like in the western like parts of Canada it's more dry yes where we are it's very humid so when it gets hot you feel the heat and when it gets cold you feel the cold because it's like a, a humid cold Uh, In the winter, it's typically around minus 25 degrees Celsius, and we can go all the way down to minus 40 degrees Celsius, which is also minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: Yeah, temperatures I don't like.
1: When I go out in the winter to take care of my cattle, I have like five layers, and and I look like the Michelin man, you know. (laughs)
0: Yes. Now, are your cattle on pasture during the winter, or what do you do with your cattle during the winter?
1: So we had the old dairy barn, and I was like, Why not use the barn as a barn? So all the animals go there in the winter, and we basically have like lockdown, essentially. Everyone is inside except for the mother cows, which can go, they have a little yard outside, so they can go out and, like, they do go outside. Even when it's minus, like, 40, minus 30, they're out there enjoying the sun. Like, if it's sunny weather, if it's not sunny, they're all inside. But they do enjoy going outside. But for the most part, just because of the amount of snow we have, we keep them in the barn. It's just easier to manage with water and feed.
0: How much snow do you get in a year?
1: So typically, probably around two to three feet. And then in more snowy years, we can we can get all the way up to six feet of
0: snow. Oh, yeah.
1: Sometimes yeah. we have a snow dump. We have two feet of snow in one night. And it's just, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. So you are able to, I think you said your last frost is sometime in May, usually, maybe early May. Yeah. So you out grazing now?
1: So in the spring, we are very muddy here. It starts to thaw around the beginning of April, but obviously our pastures are only starting to wake up. And then with all the snow thawing and melting, like the ground gets hypersaturated. So we try to avoid taking them out until A, it's dry and B, the, the grass has a certain amount of growth to it. We just put them out a day ago to uh, the one pasture we have two sacrificial pastures we have the barnyard and then we have the first sacrificial pasture i'll put them on just to get them out of the mud and then oh, we yeah. have the second one to get them out of that one when it becomes muddy and then from there, they they move on into into the main pastures
0: so do you have them on like a bedrock pasture now to start rotationally grazing them
1: Yes, so they are on bedrock. So we have actually two groups. So I run half full blood Limousines, and I run half like commercial cattle um, crosses. Usually they're, they're a bit Charlotte influenced. So we have two groups because I have an AI group and I have a natural service group. So I have a group out with the bull, and they're the ones that are out on the main on the main rotation. And then I have the other ones which are on a separate rotation.
0: You've got two groups out. Are you able to do daily rotations? Or are you doing what kind of rotations are you going and doing, and how's that going for you?
1: Yeah. So, because of the difficulties of working, essentially trying to graze on rock, we're not doing daily rotations, well, not at this point in the season and not in the pasture they are right now. The grass is too short, essentially. And the fencing is a big pain. What we do is we have mainly step-in posts because you can't put in a permanent fence. You can't dig a hole to put a, a cedar post in or anything. So we use step-in posts and we just kind of try to, you know, I stab at the ground until I feel a spot that doesn't go <laughs> clink, clink, clink every time I try to put it down. You make it work, but it's, it's almost the way it is set up right now. The paddock they're in, we can't really separate it into individual like into smaller rotation uh, paddocks. It's plans to do, but what we have to do is like, it would require like major um, management kind of overhaul, trying to like figure out how we can run those fences across that stone. Oh, yes. So we have a second paddock across the road. That's our bigger pasture. And there we kind of run it like a modified wagon wheel. And it's a bedrock outcrop and it's got a bush on it. And so we leave them in there all the time. And so that's where their water is. We can't pull water lines through most of our pastures because we have essentially like you dig down maybe 18 inches and you're on bedrock or some spots. It's like a bald spot because it's just rock because we can't pull the water line in and it gets minus 30 degrees here in the winter. You know, it has to be at least three feet deep and we can't achieve that. So we have to put it where it has to be and we can't move it anymore. So they they stay there and then what we have is we have little I guess spools or whatever you call that off to the side where we'll let them go in to graze oh. and then oh, we'll close yeah. it back up and move them and open it up to the second one so they can always come back to the where the water is and where the bush is. That way they graze the area provided which is black muck so they actually have some growth on that spot. But they're able to eat the fresh grass and they're e- able to go back in the bush and get shaved and they're able to to browse in there. And the second part of that is we kind of want them to put a little more pressure on that area because it's a very wooded area and we want them to kind of help open it up a little.
0: Oh, yes. So you've got centralized water there and you mentioned wagon wheels and you're using step-in posts and a single strand electrified fence.
1: So we use electric fence only for, because we can't put in the permanent one. Um, step in posts. And what we have also developed is essentially we take a culvert. So when you do drainage, those, those drainage tubes, they come on this, this old, like a culvert. That's usually it's defective culvert. And so we take those and we cut them into about their maybe a foot tall. So foot tall oh, yes. rings. And then we'll take a, like a, a pipe. And we'll put it in there and we'll fill it with cement. And and then we have basically a post that that's pretty solid and we just put place it in strategic areas to make um corner posts or Oh, yes. Or like so like if we have a long fence line, we'll put it in the middle and it'll just help keep that in in place.
0: Very good. That that bedrock really causes a dilemma there on your fence. And yeah. when I I have a lease property that, you know, whenever I go put in the step in post, half the time I have to move it over because it hit a rock, but it's not yeah. continuous rock. It's just little limestone that's yes. pieces that I can miss if I move over a foot. So it's much easier than what you're dealing with.
1: Yeah. Sometimes, like if you're in a really bad spot, like it's just a solid rock. If it's a better, better spot, it's kind of like cracked rock. So you can find. Usually if you look on the ground and you see the grass, you'll see where the grass is taller. That's where the crack is. And that's oh, where you yes. try to aim your fence posts. But I probably have the record of the most broken fence posts because when I try <laughs> to go put them in, I just, they just break on me.
0: Oh, yes. So I can see some challenges there with your bedrock. You've listed a couple already. Putting your fences in has, presents its own challenges. Watering presents its own challenges. So you're using a centralized water system. What other challenges does that grazing bedrock present
1: to you? Yeah, so there's two main things, and that's the lack of organic matter means there is not very much nutrients available to the forages, and also we can't hold on to water. So when it rains, like we get around 30 inches of rain during the summer, but like the ground can't hold it; it just all it'll soak in what it can, but the rest is go, it's just gone.
0: Do you have any plans or any ideas how how to increase that organic matter there for you?
1: Yeah, so we do fertilize for one. I know a lot of people they might not like that, but we have to introduce nutrients to there we we don't yeah. really have much option and you can only grow organic matter so fast and if you're if mm-hmm. you're harvesting meat off of that, you have to replenish it somehow. And then the second thing is that we're what we're doing is we'll graze bales out so if we'll have like a bald patch or a very shallow patch of soil we'll put a, a bale down and then whatever is essentially quote-unquote waste is not wasted it's just it's gonna cause it's gonna create some organic matter there. oh yes some substance for the grass to grow on
0: right that that bale will give you some more carbon and get organic matter there really build it up yeah. takes a while though doesn't it
1: it, it does, yeah, but it, it works faster than if you don't do anything.
0: That is true, yes, yes. Now, in addition to cattle, you also have other species.
1: Yes, we raise uh, boar goats, and we also raise hogs and turkeys.
0: You mentioned the bush there where your watering system are for the cows are you using your goats to graze that area or
1: eventually it's the plan at this point they're not quite out there yet with the with the cattle i would like to have a flirt eventually but and at this point like i just started with the goats uh, in 2020 so i've only had them for three years and i started with a small group so i'm trying to increase my my herd size and The other thing is we do have a predator presence in our area and I'm just, I haven't been comfortable to remove them from like, we have a small, like we have an area that has a permanent fence oh yeah, and that's where I, that's usually where I run them, but I haven't been confident enough to put them outside that fenced area unless our male goats will will do what we call pasture tests. And I have essentially, it's a big crate that I, it's like, it's like a big chicken tractor but for goats and I put my bucks in there and I pull that along, but it's like it's enclosed or I have an electric fence that I put on.
0: So similar to what, um, Justin Rhodes has for some of his sheep. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, as you think about your goats in the future and liking to get, get them out there, are you thinking livestock guardian dogs or some kind of guardian animal of help or what's your thoughts there?
1: Yeah. So I was looking into getting dogs uh, or a dog just because like we do have coyotes and they're pretty bold. I think they're, they might be coy dogs, mixed breed. Oh yes. I've been out, you know, doing fencing and I turned the corner and there's a coyote like 10 feet away from oh. me. And, and, you know, it's just, it's looking at you and it's not thinking I'm going to run away. It's thinking, is this a potential meal? And I'm like, no, no. If it's staring <laughs> at me like that, I don't know what it's going to, try with a goat so oh, yes so yeah definitely before they go out i want to have a livestock guardian dog there with them
0: are your turkeys out on pasture
1: yeah so they're out too and the same kind of tractor chicken tractor style i guess it's a turkey tractor and then like they aren't right now i just keep them close for the same reason as the goats i keep them close to the main like the main mm-hmm. buildings and stuff where that they're less likely to get predated on I did lose one once, but he jumped the fence. So I probably kind of did that to himself. Oh. Eventually, like when we, like my goal would be when we have the herd, So I would run the herd in the front and then I would run the turkeys in behind them and oh, hopefully, yes. you know, kind of help deter predators just by being around the bigger animals as well.
0: Now you mentioned a turkey tractor. Is it completely enclosed or are you using like electric netting or? Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, so it's basically it's it's similar to the to the goat tractor. It's like a crate. Oh yes. And and it pulls along. And then like when they're small, they're enclosed. And when they get a bit bigger, I have a I have a fence that they can go out.
0: And how do you move that?
1: Oh, I, I pull it with either the gator or the tractor. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, yeah, because it sounded like it'd be a little heavy to move by hand. They're
1: built heavy duty and. They kind of come like that. So, like, what ha- like what happens if my parents they buy an equipment? So these particular crates they bought a new hay rake, and so it came. It was shipped in a crate in two crates. So I had two crates for me, and it's like oh, yes. convenient. They're already built. You know, I just had to modify them to to uh, to be strong enough to be pulled around.
0: Oh yes, yeah, very good reuse of that material. What breed are you using for your turkeys?
1: Our turkeys are the miniature whites. I've raised everything from bronze to the bronze breast to uh, commercial whites, heritage breeds. And I found that the miniatures are kind of the best of both worlds. They're a little more hardy than the commercial white. Like those ones, I've had them and they they literally, they'll be standing in front of me and, and they'll have a heart attack. And I'm like, there goes oh, a 30-pound no. bird. So the little ones they're a little more hardy, and as well the processor that i have available to me he own they only do birds up to 20 pounds it's easier for me to manage these birds because they don't get very big
0: and when he processes them for you is he processing them into whole bird packages or yeah. are you doing part
1: we get them packaged into whole birds and my main market for them is thanksgiving and christmas and then whatever we don't sell at Thanksgiving or Christmas, the, the rest gets made into sausages because it's, it's too long around to the, to the next Thanksgiving and not many people buy whole birds so oh, throughout yes. the year. So it's just easier. And a lot of people actually love the turkey sausages.
0: And I think you have a, some different regulations to deal with than I would if I was raising turkeys. You have a quota you have to work with.
1: Yeah, So we have a quota system up here in Canada. And essentially, what it does is you buy the rights to produce a certain amount of animals. And that guarantees kind of the price you get for that animal. So or for that product, milk and eggs are included in this. So if you're a dairy farmer, you know, you have 50 kilos of, of quota, that means you have you can have 80 cows and you, you, you're you always guaranteed your milk price is going to be stable. For turkeys, you're only allowed to raise 50 birds per year if you don't have quota. For chickens, you can raise up to 300 birds, no quota. For meat, you can have 99 laying hens uh, before you need quota. And for milk, you can't have one milking cow.
0: Is there a quota on like goat milk or sheep milk?
1: No quota on sheep or goats. So oh. that's that's open market. Usually, people do sign contracts with processors, though, oh, because yes. there are still there are still like regulations you have to follow and yes. and uh, how you can process the milk and this and that. And it's usually easier when it, you just sell it directly to a uh, processing plant.
0: Why did you choose turkeys as opposed to chickens?
1: I have raised m- meat birds, like the meat chickens, but I prefer the turkeys. They're just more social and they're, oh, they're yes. more. They're more curious about walking around and and going out and doing things. and Maybe I just like turkeys better to eat as well.
0: I am a fan of turkey. I have not raised any, but it is something I talk about occasionally. Usually my wife says I have enough going on. (laughs) But one of these days, I'm going to raise some turkeys.
1: What I don't like about them, though, is that they are very personable. So they're kind of Uh like puppies. Yes, and they they do recognize you, and they do kind of, like they you come out to them, and they see you, and they 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 come on over, and they start talking to you and stuff. And so it is kind of hard from that perspective to send them a chicken would be easier.
0: I would assume based upon your description, they're they're more similar to goats because goats have such personalities.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So they're more, yeah, they're more like uh, a ruminant in personality or like a pig. They're just more intelligent, I guess. That's that's <laughs> what it comes down to.
0: In addition to the cattle, the goats, the turkeys, you also have pigs. Do you raise them on pasture or what? how do you raise your pigs?
1: I guess you could call it forested pastures. So we'd have another area of bedrock that's more heavily uh infested by trees i don't want to say infested but it hasn't so i'm leasing this from the neighbor and the neighbor hasn't they don't really go there much because they don't live nearby so it's kind of like been forgotten and you know over all the the storms we had and these storms like trees have fallen and it's just overgrown so they're in there and that's where i run them try and help clear it up a bit and eventually hopefully we can graze other animals on it but before that they really need to to open it up more and i'm using the pigs to do all the heavy work
0: how's that going for you
1: pretty good they're they're very good at at clearing
0: now do you have breeding stock or are you just buying feeders and raising them
1: i used to buy feeders and i guess the common thing for a lot of people is the people that raise the feeders are usually retiring because they're older they're older folks and so I used to got, buy them from one person and he retired and then I started buying them from another guy and he retired and I started buying them from another guy and he unfortunately passed away because he was an older gentleman. And then I bought some more from another person yet again. And then, you know, I just wasn't happy with the quality of the, of the animal that I was getting. So I was like, I'm going to do my own because I don't I don't want to always have to change who I'm getting them from because you never know how they're biosecurity standards are and what they could bring to your farm. So I just decided safer if I raise my own stock.
0: You know, I watch a YouTube channel that, in your direction, now how close to you, I'm not sure because that's way away from here, but Pete from Just a Few Acres Farm, and he he is struggling with the same issues on sourcing feeder pigs. So he's changing the direction somewhat of his direction of his pig program and breeding in some different breeding stock Uh, he was raising some of his own and buying some so he's changing it around for some of the same reasons that you brought up just sourcing those feeder pigs with quality genetics that'll work
1: yeah exactly and yeah and i know no pete i I watch him too on uh, youtube he's actually i looked it up he's about five hours south from me oh yes Closer to me than he is to you. That's true. Sure.
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. He's running Dexter cattle. He is doing rotational grazing, but he's working with that cold environment like you are. So there's some limitations where I'm trying to keep cattle on pasture 365 days of a year. That's a little bit harder for you all that yeah. far north. And something that I really like that Pete does that I would like. To talk to him about, I see pastures getting short. And this is wherever I go, rather at the end of my driveway, the pasture's really short. It's my neighbor's pasture, but it's really short. But at times, you need to pull off of it and let it recover if you have to put your cattle up. And I know certain grazers are like, don't you shouldn't have a sacrificial patty. But at times you do. Yeah. Depending on the operation and depending on where you're located. But Pete is really good about summer if he's looking like he's not he doesn't have enough grass, pulls his cattle up and he feeds them hay until that grass is able to catch up and get ahead of him so that he's not out there hurting his pasture. And that's that's one thing I really think he does really well.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we do the same thing. So we suffer from drought usually around end of July, August. We, we usually go into a drought period. And obviously with a stone, like there's nothing growing. So we, we take the cattle and they put them in a sacrificial area and we just feed them because if you keep them on there, they're always going to keep nipping at that grass and it's just not going to be able to, to recover. If it goes dormant, you know, and they just nip it. You know, it's not, not helping the situation and you have to think of it, you're a grass farmer before you're a livestock farmer. So you have to take care of your grass. If your grass is not in good health, it's not going to, your cows aren't going to benefit from it.
0: I completely agree. You've got to manage the grass and then you're using the livestock to yeah. harvest the grass and, and turn it into your marketable product, whatever that may be. And you're doing a few different species there to get it there. Yeah, but your grass, without your grass, you can't produce the other.
1: Your soil is the pantry, the sun is the chef, and the grass is the stove you're cooking on. If your stove isn't working, you're not going to make anything.
0: Yes, you're right. Yeah, because all the ingredients are there in the soil and you're putting it together. But if your stove's not doing anything, you can't produce that end product. One thing, you, you talked about a few different species there. Are you marketing meat from all those species directly to the consumer? And I know we talked just a touch about turkeys and taking them to the processor, but how are you marketing those products?
1: Yes. So my main market is directly to consumer. So I sell either at farmers market or, or people that have met me beforehand and they now purchase from me directly and word of mouth. And that's, that's my main market. I used to do stalkers. And when I got into cattle, I started with those two, two cows. And then I, I bought some, uh, some bottle calves to, you know, start out a bit more, to grow to herd size. And then I bought some more cows because my dad was like, if you want to make money with cows, you got to have a bigger herd. Like, okay. <laughs> so I bought more cows. So I bought some, I had some Angus, I had some Herefords. And then I had, of course, I had my, my full blood limousines. So I had a big herd and I had more animals than I could sell directly to people. So I was selling stalkers, And I'll tell you, like, it's a bad market for stalkers, even up here. I went to the local sale barn just for fun to see how it is. And essentially, there's two guys there that are buying cattle. And the one guy deals mostly in Holstein crosses because we have a lot of dairy farms up here and they'll they'll AI to Angus or what. Oh, yeah. So there's one guy who just buys that and then the other guy buys everything else. So there's really no competition. Like even when I sell directly to to a feedlot, it's kind of like, oh, this breed is uh, not necessarily sought after because they don't, quote unquote, they don't eat a lot, which to Uh. them, you know, Eating a lot of food essentially equates to gaining a lot of pounds, which is not necessarily uh, truth. So I was selling a lot at the beginning to to the auction market because I couldn't market everything directly, mm. and so I really cut back on the amount of animals I had. So I, I uh, let some animals go, and and now I'm pretty much able to sell all of my animals directly to consumers. And so, like at this point. Because I'm able to do this, like an animal that before I would have lost money sending her to the auction, but now she's my most valuable animal because not only has she produced X amount of calves over her life, she's now also walking ground beef for me, which oh, yeah. is my best seller. So now I'm, I took a product that wasn't very uh, sought after and is now able to turn that into a profit.
0: So you're able to sell most of your animals or market them directly to the consumer. I know you said earlier you went to the farmer's market Is and word of mouth. Is that the only way you built that consumer base or customer base up? And what do you do to keep it going for you or to increase it as needed?
1: When I originally started, I started, it was Kijiji, which is kind of like Craigslist. I just kind of posted, I have local meat available and you know some people would contact me and then they come visit the farm and then they would see that and then I also had a Facebook page and then I made a, a website and then I got more people coming and, and visiting and then buying and essentially the relationship developed like that with your customers and like it's usually it's an ongoing relationship especially with customers that buy whole halves and quarters. I have a better relationship with them than people that buy retail cuts they're less likely to come back than someone that's putting a bigger investment into oh yes into a, a bigger animal
0: you've built that relationship are there are there things you're doing ongoing like do you email them or how do you stay in contact or do they just contact you when they need more beef or more whatever
1: yeah, so with most people I I keep in contact either with email or with text. So a lot of people I'll just, you know, they'll they'll text me and I'll send them updates on the animals or oh, send them yes. pictures. Or or they'll come out to the farm once a year to visit the animals uh during the summer. Or it depends how far they are from the farm. Sometimes they're a bit further, so they don't want to come out too many times, but they'll be here once at least and then that's that's how kind of they see the animals, they see the environment and They're happy with how their animals are raised and they're confident in my capabilities of bringing them a quality product. So that's kind of how that starts. And then, you know, we just kind of keep in touch.
0: Yes. And I think that on the farm, visitation, getting them out there, seeing your practices, seeing you, seeing your animal husbandry, they want to support things that they believe in. Exactly. So getting them out there really helps. And that's that's something as I look towards the future and what I want to do with grass-fed meats. I want to get people out here on the farm, see what we're doing. You know, as and I mentioned this before, our guests have mentioned it before, more and more kids, they don't talk about their grandparents' farm because their grandparents have lived in town that long we're just getting further and further removed so it's important to to get people out and build that relationship
1: for sure like there's a lot of even around here people don't understand that for a cow to make milk she has to have a calf oh yes or meat comes from an animal that it's harvested from an animal and it's it's really sad that that's where we're at now it's so removed so far removed and it's hard for us because we grow up knowing this and it's totally an alien idea for for a lot of people, these oh days.
0: yes. One thing you mentioned was like if they purchase a whole animal or a half or even a quarter. Are you selling pigs and goats the same way?
1: Yeah. So the beef we do whole, half, quarter, and then pigs we do whole, half, and then the goats we only do whole because they're only they're only so big, and if you right. have them, you, you you really you don't have that much. So we only do whole goats.
0: Do you find you have a a good market for goat meat
1: we have yeah so so far slow growing because i've only had them for three years you know i've been doing my best marketing and it's you know it's still a work in progress but so far we've had pretty good uh success with selling them uh, so we sell them I, like i said we sell them whole and we sell the retail cuts as well
0: you're using boar goats
1: yes boar goats if you think of a boar goat a lot of people think like a feedlot animal they eat grain you raise them like that but originally i wanted to get kiko goats which were raised in a system that i find is, is like ideal right you want low input high yeah. output yes um and so i spoke to, had originally spoken to garrick Batten he's the, yes. the developer of the kiko breed Unfortunately, there was no or not many Kikos available in our area in Canada. No. Yes. At that time. And for me, it was really important as well that they came from uh, biosecure and tested herds. And there just wasn't the, the availability for that. So what I ended up doing is, is taking boar goats from, from a breeder that did follow similar, um, Ideology of like how they, the animals should be raised. Like you only pick your best growing animals, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so now I run those boar goats like Kiko goats. So we do the same. You know, we weigh them at birth, we weigh them at weaning, we weigh them at finishing, and then. Like, so what I do, what I call it's buck testing. So I have all my bucks are all raised in the same conditions. They're all run together on that in that goat tractor. And, oh yes. Um, at the end of the season, I take my best growing animals and I either retain them or I sell those as breeding stock. And anything that doesn't meet my criteria, it is sold for meat. So it's a it's a good system to make sure that you're only retaining good genetics that perform on grass. Oh
0: yes. And are you sticking with the Borgoats, and or are you cross breeding any?
1: At this point, we're. Sticking to boar goats because that's what's around. Yes. Uh, eventually, I'd like to import a Kiko buck at some point, or maybe a boar buck, but probably a Kiko buck from the U.S. But at this point, our border is closed to goats. Just they just closed it in December of uh, December 2022. They closed the border, oh. so we can't import. We don't know when we'll be able to import next. So oh yeah. Until then, I have to work what we have.
0: Yes. You would mentioned AI earlier. Have you considered AI on your goats?
1: Yes, I have considered AI and my AI tech, we've spoken and he was really excited about the idea. The problem is it's very expensive to find. So if I wanted to buy a buck in Canada, I could buy a buck in Canada and just ship them here. You know, it's not that big a deal, but... If I want to buy semen, I could buy semen from the States, but at $200 a straw, and then you have the conversion of the of the dollars, so for me, it's even more expensive. And then you have to ship it, and you have to find a company that's willing to ship uh, goat semen up into Canada, and then at one point, you know, it just, the cost accumulates too much, and, and the success of AI in goats is lower than in cattle, so you kind of have to weigh your pros and cons. If I were to do that, I would probably try embryos rather than semen. Probably a little bit more successful, but it's in there. We're thinking about it, but it's just at this point, the cost. Even
0: being in the States for myself, I no longer have registered goats, but I did have registered Kikos for a long time. And I went to the AI school for goats. I planned on doing it. I even... Purchased a little bit of semen and it just didn't work out and I didn't get it done. But even when I start figuring it up and I don't have some of those exporting, importing costs that you have and I can probably get it a little bit cheaper than you can, it's still hard to factor in to make money with it unless you're selling seed stock and then it makes a difference if there's some specific genetics there. And one thing that I mentioned on the podcast before, marketing is not not one of my strong suits, or I don't think it is. And so I haven't done the best towards that end. so I got into the registered Kikos, thought I'd be do that a little bit more. I found I didn't. So I sold my registered Kikos, and now I've got some commercial goats. I figure it fits me a little bit better. Maybe at some time in the future when I have more time, That's a possibility, but right now, I think these commercial goats are doing all I need to do right now.
1: So for me, I I decided to go with registered stock just because it's just that one layer more of of potential sale that you can reach. So if I make all my calculations on on just uh, like meat stock, and then you you know you have your breeding stock on top of that, you have your breeding your tested breeding bucks on top of that. It's just you, you have the potential to sell. A better animal at a better price and so it's just it that's that door is open so you could you could do that if you wanted to but you make the numbers work on your or your meat animals
0: right and and you mentioned a good point there you have multiple exit strategies for your animals you're raising they potentially can be as breeding stock they potentially could be meat but you got multiple exit points with that with my commercial flock You know i'm limited on those exit plans for them they they become meat or that's about what they become now there may be some potential for some replacement does to be sold but it's not the same market as seed stock or or that multiplier level of registered business
1: and for me also like with the well it's less with the goats it's more of the the cattle like when you have a registered animal you have a bit more data on that animal. And so like you have birth weights, you have weaning weights, you kind of have like a set history. And you can kind of plan your breedings based off of that. Obviously, you should always take in consideration how your animal actually performs and not just look at the pedigree. I know that's what Garrett, like when we were speaking, he was because then he was starting the Kikunui project because the Kikos in the US, people are going back to breeding with pedigree instead of, breeding based on performance and and that defeats the whole purpose of the breed right so in my s- setting here like how I treat them is is performance-based breeding and selection to make sure but you have that added history of the papers just to make everything easier
0: yeah, a little bit more predictability and before we dive in a little bit deeper there with your cattle and what you're doing when you think about your goals for the next few years Where do you see Fossil Ridge Farms going?
1: Yeah, so I definitely uh, would like to settle more into trying to get that pasture rotation more organized and maybe be able to set up a few more grazing paddocks and just divide it up more. Like we started with one pasture where the cows just used to sit out there and now we had, and then we went on to, okay, well, we move them back and forth a bit. And then now we had added a couple more pastures and- you know, it's a it's a progress, but I would definitely like to see more rotation and, and just try and help the organic matter grow on that on that rock and make it more healthier essentially for the, the soil and, and the cattle and produce meat from that and then just, you know, do my best.
0: Excellent. I think that journey from set stocking rate right, where continuous grazing to rotational. If you listen to the experts you know, they're, they're telling you daily moves or even every 12 hours. Sometimes they talk about even more. For me, you know, I went to grazing school recently and that's encouraged me to do more frequent moves. But at the same time, you're getting benefit. And I forget what those percentages are. It seems like you get 30% of forage utilization with continuous grazing. And by the time you get to... Daily moves, you're at 70% of forage utilization, but it's a continuum. So you start improving even when you go to four paddocks. It makes a big difference. And you're just working on that continuum and being more efficient with your forage harvest. But you've got to work with what works for you, what works for your farm. And I think sometimes when we talk about daily moves, We scare people off because they're like, how do I have time to do that? I think the most important thing is to get started. Wherever you are, get started. Move your cows a little bit or whatever animal you have, and you'll start noticing a difference. But you don't have to jump off the deep end tomorrow.
1: If I would have started, the farm I worked at between college and coming home, we did daily moves. He did New Zealand-style dairy operations. So we were moving them daily. But his setup was was so that like it was easy, you know. He had his paddock set up, and you would go in there, you would put a new fence, and then and, and you wouldn't take the old one off, and they would just keep going. And it was set up for it. But you have to work with what you have. Like if I would have th- tried to do that at the beginning, I don't think it would have been very successful because it's just you weren't set up. I didn't have the knowledge for for doing it, and you kind of have to work with the ground you have too. Like yes, my my soil my bedrock ridge here is not going to allow daily moves. And then that's the other thing you have to consider. You can't just switch between doing daily moves and then leaving them a bunch of times and then doing daily. You kind of have to stay consistent because the way the bacteria in the rumen are, you don't want to always introduce a different kind of feed to them, right? You kind of want to keep whatever's going on consistent. So that's important too, because I guess there's a There is such a thing as starving in plentifuls. So, if you move an animal from one feed to a different feed and the gut bacteria had no chance to to adjust to it, you know, they can starve even though they have a field full of grass, you know, because the, the bacteria aren't there yet.
0: Well, Claudia, it is time we transition to our overgrazing section. And in our overgrazing section, I think we're going to talk about some limousine.
1: Yeah. So... I would like to talk about full-blood limousine cattle. The limousine is a continental breed. It comes from France. So other continental breeds you might be familiar with are the Charolais, Cimental, blanc uh, uh Montbeliard. Those are continental breeds. And then your Angus are British breeds, right? So back in 1960, 1960- is when the first limousine bull was imported to North America and he came to Canada. So a full blood essentially means that that animal has 100% bloodlines coming from the original French stock. So you can trace it, this animal's uh, history all the way back to the French herd book. A purebred animal will have had, at some point, different breed introduced into its lineage, so not 100% of it can be traced back. So it'll axe out at like 99%. And so the difference these days is that because of the crossbreeding effort to adjust to the North American market, the purebred limousine is a lot different in phenotype than the full-blood limousine. If you look at a semen catalog, it's hard to distinguish it from an Angus because they tried so hard to make it into what the commercial um processing plants and feedlots wanted, which was Angus type animals. So they tried really hard. I don't know if they tried on purpose, but they definitely looked like they did to make an Angus. It
0: drives me crazy when I look at a a semen catalog and I have to look at the top of the page to find out what breed I'm looking at.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just
0: crazy to me.
1: You got four big processing plants and they all dictate what kind of animal they want. So all the feedlots are like, okay, well, well, we want this kind of animal. And so now all the breeders go like, okay, well, we'll make that kind of animal. So they all, all different breeders, I think the only breeder that doesn't fall into that is probably Hereford's, but essentially like from the commercial breeds, um, they're all the same kind of typish uh, animal. So the limo, the purebred limo looks like an Angus, kind of behaves like an Angus. Like in the European, in the French standard for a limousine or a limousine in the French, it's a long-bodied animal, so it doesn't have a huge belly. It kind of looks like, I don't want to say a wiener dog, but like it kind of looks like a dash on it. has a long, narrow torso.
0: If the listeners checks out the YouTube video, you've got a picture of a bull right behind you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you can see here, hes he's got a long torso. So if he was a purebred, he'd probably be that much shorter. Oh, yeah. The purebreds, they tend to be a bit shorter and they have a like a lower hanging belly, which is bigger bellies, essentially more guts to digest grass. But the cool thing about the full blood limo is it has a gene called F94L that makes it a lot more feed efficient than regular cattle. They eat the same amount as an Angus or an Hereford. Like I've, I've had them side by side and if you work with them, you see them eating and like they eat the same or less than those cows like those other cows they're just stuffing their face and they're not really for they're not making me a bigger calf than than the limo is you know my limo she produces me a hundred pound calf at birth and these other ones they'll give me a 60 pound calf you know and then the gene what it does it it creates a more tender meat so the meat itself is less hard to cut through so they did shear tests and it's just more tender and they have more muscle, right? So it's kind of like a double muscle gene. Their muscles grow big. And the thing is, the full bloods—they are ninety-four percent of them are homozygous for this gene, and the purebreds are only sixty percent have the gene at all. So oh wow! And this gene, like it, you do have an effect when it's when you have one copy, but you're real. You really see it when you have two copies of it. So you only really see it in full blown effect when you have a, a full blood.
0: Is that a, a gene you can do a DNA test to see if it's present? Yes. So
1: we do DNA tests for that. Like We're pretty much guaranteed that they have it. There's a small chance that they have one of the other double muscling gene. Uh, oh, yes. Like the Charlotte or like the Belgian Blue have that, that causes trouble. Unlike those, this myostatin gene does not cause birthing difficulties. So the calf is born normal. And then when it starts to grow, that's when it kicks in and kind of oh, yes. helps them develop that bigger muscle.
0: Now, is is that F94L gene in the same loci as the double muscling gene or is that a... Yes,
1: yes, exactly. So, you can't have that gene and then another double muscling gene. I know it's like QXL or something. I don't oh, know. Oh, yes. There's, there's, a, there's two other, I think there's two other main genes that are like that. They're on the same one. So, you can't have that... Two copies of the the F ninety four L, and then you can't have another copy of the other one. It's it's either you got both of those, you got you got a mix of them, or you don't have any at all. Oh, okay. So limousines are known as the carcass breed. So when you go to slaughter them, they have the nicest carcass out of all all breeds, and this is especially important for me because I do direct to consumer. I want as much meat as possible off that animal, so my customer has as much meat from that animal as they. Because we obviously we pay hanging weight.
0: And I think you said, but you finish your limousines on grass.
1: So they're all obviously grass fed and the way we do it, right. So we calve in February, which is like minus 20 degrees. You know, it's a cold time of the year. So we calve them then. And then, so we keep them for a year and a half. They're born the one year. And then in the second year, around August, September, that's when we go to process them. So we don't have to keep them through a second winter. It just and it gives us like the biggest growth range that we can manage for our area up here.
0: Now during the the winter, are you just feeding them hay, or are they get anything else?
1: So yeah, we do silage bales. We usually go for aim for hay. Yes, but if the weather isn't right, we don't want the quality to go down. So we'll just wrap it. If the weather suddenly changes and it's going to rain on it, like we'll we'll just wrap it and make sure that we keep that quality we don't want to to grade any any quality of the hay that we have
0: before we finish up with the overgrazing section you have any last words you'd like to add
1: the limos are a bit of a bigger animal than what most people have here as a grazing animal and i know a lot of people they're probably like geez you're you're feeding a big animal for nothing but the limo really it's because of its feed efficiency and despite you know that it's a big animal it's an easy animal to work with so you know they're pretty docile and that's something they took it to heart because I think at the beginning when they came here in the 80s or so they were considered like crazy animals but the breed associations really took that to heart and uh, made sure that when you register animals that you have to fill out a behavior score so you have to score your animal is she crazy will she try to kill you she's super docile so that, you know, you, you only keep animals that are nice and docile and which is really important because a calm animal is a safe animal. If you have a crazy animal or an aggressive cow, you know, not only is she a danger to you, but she's going to stress out the entire herd. As soon as you get rid of that one cow, your whole herd's going to calm down. So it's, it's yes. really nice that they're, they're very nice and easy, docile cattle to work with despite being a big animal.
0: You mentioned a couple of things there, Claudia. One... It, a bigger animal it's a little bit bigger i'm where I'm located in Oklahoma, I'm working on having a little bit smaller animal. but one thing I think about is you as you go north and the climate gets colder, the mammals, the wild mammals are have larger bodies so so to me, that makes some sense there that you would have a larger animal in Canada now. I say that every operation is different and you got to find out what works for you. So I think that's probably the most important thing is figuring out what works for you and your market. If you don't have something you can market, you got problems. And then secondly, my grandpa purchased some full blood limousines decades ago. And they were crazy. And that was an issue my dad and I really focused on. Was docility. And when we purchased full blood limousine bulls, we made sure to pick bulls that were really good on that temperament. And it made a tremendous difference on our herd. I was amazed by the progress. And I have the advantage I can look at my dad's herd and I can look at my grandpa's herd. And my grandpa's herd, I I still don't understand. He's 96 and shouldn't be out there with them because they're a little crazy. But our herd, he could come out with our herd and wouldn't be a problem because we made that a point of em- emphasis. I noticed when we were looking for bulls in limousine, we're moving a little ways away from that with dad's herd. But when we were looking for bulls, full-blood limousine bulls, the bulls we looked at were really calm, and then we made it emphasis of it and made a big difference.
1: The behavior is 70% inheritable. Oh yes. So if you work, if you have a calm animal, you're seventy percent likely that his offspring will also be calm. So it's easy to breed in, guys. It's not that hard. If you keep a crazy animal, you're gonna have a crazy calf. If you keep a calm animal, you're gonna have a calm calf. So it's very heritable. And uh, like I've noticed this with my like my bull too. I had to look around when I wanted a bull, and then I I saw this guy, and I was like, I went to see him, and like, ah, this is the calmest bull i have ever met in my entire life and i've been i've been around a lot of bulls in my life and you know i was like you know that that's the animal i want and so that's what we got and then the other thing was yeah with the larger cows for us we want bigger calves so my preferred calf size is around 100 pounds and because it's cold here when we calf, we calve in the winter, it's minus 20, you have a hundred pound calf and they hit the ground running. You know, it's like oh, the yes. cold doesn't even affect them. As soon as they're dried off, you know, they're fine. You know? And then the thing is when we have the Angus or the Angus crossbred animals and they have these smaller calves, like 60 pounds, 70 pounds, they're always cold. They're just not as hardy from the beginning. They just have to work that much harder to get where that hundred pound calf is. And oh, it's, yes. It, they just fall behind and... We prefer to larger animals. And I know a lot of people are probably like, damn, a hundred pound calf. But if you look at it this way, a thousand pound cow should be able to have a calf that's 10% of her weight, which is a hundred pounds. So your Angus cows should be able to have hundred pound calves. It's just, there's been this huge emphasis on like birth weights, low birth weights over the these last few years that everybody's now scared of a hundred pound calf, which is normal. Like, in theory, my 1,500-pound cow should be able to have a 150-pound calf. But 100 pounds is ideal for me.
0: Very good, Claudia. Claudia, it's time we move to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question. What is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource?
1: Yes, so my favorite resource is YouTube. I'm not a big reader, and you know, there's only like when you buy a book, you know, you have you have your information in there. But when you go on YouTube and you're like, I have this very specific problem or question, you type it in there and usually you have a couple of answers or a couple of different ways of fixing that problem or or explanations or whatnot. So it's it's nice to have a variety and it's a variety of people you can find to, to help you with that solution.
0: I am a reader, but I do love my YouTube channels and um, I have a A certain set of channels that I watch each week and usually Saturday and Sunday morning when I get up up before everyone else is up, I go through my YouTube channels and catch up on what's going. Do you have some favorite YouTube channels that you watch?
1: Obviously, uh, just a few acres, Pete. Then there's, I think it's called Heifer USA. They have some interesting stuff too. There's a few others, but I can recall them off the top of my head. I think there's Sheraton Park Farms.
0: Our second question What is your favorite tool on the farm, or what tool could you not live without on the farm?
1: My go to would be my gator or tractor because I use that every day. Obviously, the fencer because we only run like electric, but oh, you know, yes. if I had to, if I had like, I think that's a pretty standard thing. If you have livestock, you have a fence. It doesn't really, <laughs> I don't yes. think you can count it because you have to have it. But uh, yeah, so definitely like the gator or the the tractor because it just, they're my workhorses.
0: Very good. And our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started?
1: Yeah. So there's been a lot of good advice given by many different people and I haven't heard this one yet. So I'm going to say take into consideration farm safety. Farms are dangerous. They are. There's a lot of things that can go wrong if you're not paying attention, if you're not being careful if you're rushing to get something done you know there's always a possibility of injury or death and you know i don't have a shortage of of stories of people getting injured and especially i want to say i either you you've grown up on a firm and you already noticed stuff and you need a reminder or you're just starting into it you you never been on a farm or you you grew up in the city and you haven't been exposed to the dangers and and then you come and you don't realize that you know a pto or 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 an angry mama is a danger oh you know? yes and so and like especially like when you have kids too it's it's important to step up your your farm safety even more because i've seen a lot like, unfortunately, just last year we had a child. He was run over by a bobcat because oh, no. he was riding, he was riding in the bucket and then they hit a bump and he fell out and he got run over. And then we also had a situation last year where uh, a new farmer purchased a uh, tractor and he had gotten caught in the PTO because he didn't turn it off when he went to oh, go. Oh, no. And I, I, one of my teachers in college, he said this, there's no such thing as an accident because accidents can all be prevented. If you take a moment, you're like, oh, if I turn the PTO off, then this is going to be, if you turn the tractor off, then the the clutch can't slip. Uh, Go, go check on your bail spear if it's actually locked when you put it onto your front motor, you know, things like that, uh. When you're working with cattle or, or even sheep can be dangerous. You know, if, you, <laughs> if a ram butts you in the head, you know, you're yeah. probably going to have a cracked skull. Like You know, <laughs> there's danger around every corner. You just have to make sure that you're, you're aware of what's going on and not, not put yourself at risk.
0: Uh, I completely agree. And sadly, as, as you talk about those farm stories, I think about farm stories here people i know things that's happened things that's happened to to my parents to myself farm safety take just a moment think about what you're doing don't don't be in a hurry you want to you want to take your time and just make sure you're doing it deliberately and know what you're doing and if you're not sure shut all the moving parts down there's no reason to get out there among yeah. them
1: and if you're really unsure of what you're doing, like ask for help. Yes, find someone that knows what they're advice. doing. You know, if you're trying to treat a cow and you have no idea what you're doing, call a vet. They have they have drugs that'll persuade the animal. You know, oh, it's yeah. not. Don't use your physical strength. You'll never win against an animal. It, you they're stronger you will than not. You are.
0: And just like you mentioned the sheep, oh man, sheep can be crazy. And you think you can handle them, but they're they can be quite. They're,
1: they're strong. They,
0: they pound are pound for
1: pound. Animals are much stronger than we are. So I've been run over by a goat. It, you know, it happens.
0: And Claudia, our last question is, where can others find out more about you?
1: Yes. So we have a website, uh, FossilRidgeFarms.ca, CA for Canada. Uh, we also have a Facebook page and an Instagram by the same name, Fossil Ridge Farms. I have a YouTube channel with a couple of videos, but not, nothing too crazy, just some... <laughs> videos of the, the animals.
0: Very good. Claudia, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
0: You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community grazinggrass.com don't forget to follow and subscribe to the grazing grass podcast on facebook twitter instagram and youtube for past and future episodes we also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey so if you're interested fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the be our guest link until next time keep on grazing grass I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, Click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.